Thanks for coming down. Oh yeah. Um, so, do you need water or anything before we start? No, I should be okay. Okay, cool. Um, so this is Joey. Joey, what did you do this this summer? I know you you went somewhere. It was kind of cool. <laughs> great buildup. <laughs> I know, right? Hey, so tell me what you did this summer. I mean. <laughs> um, so I got a scholarship to be able to go and attend part of a, a faculty-led ethnographic field school led by a faculty member here, here at MSU actually now has switched to uh, College of Education, Health, and Human Development. It used to be in anthropology. Um, and we all developed our personal research projects, um, and I decided to focus my lens on how uh, climate change and the industrialization of the international fishing industry was impacting uh, nutrition of this of two different communities in Peru. Um, looking at one coastal town and one uh, so in in the Peruvian in the the Andean highlands, um, and comparing what sort of nutritional challenges each are facing, um, based on. Uh, comparisons between ethnographically based experiences with lived experiences of part of people living in these areas with peer-reviewed literature and climatological data um, to compare the lived experiences. So, you know, just a very small, small goal, small study there. Small study. Yeah. <laughs> not complicated, not, not intense at all. Yeah, so. it, it definitely, it was biting off much more than I could handle in that amount of time with limited Spanish and only like four, five weeks. Yeah. Was it just you working on the, on that project? Yeah. Okay. So everybody uh, was able to pick whatever topic they wanted to. I was the only one that decided uh, climate change and, and essentially, I mean, even here at MSU, like I have a, a passion for uh, global development and like the strains that countries feel when developing. And this, and to me, uh, food seems to be one of the most common ones, especially seems to be affecting Peru. Um, in my interest in Peru had started back when I was looking at the glaciers of the Peruvian Andes. Um, in the Cordillera Blanca, the most sensitive glaciers in the world, um, there's scarcely a population in the world more dependent on their landscape, more dependent on their glaciers than uh, the people of Peru, particularly those living in the mountains. So what are their, what are their food systems like then? So that, that's what was super wild to, to see there. So there was, somebody was telling me about how like the, the agronomy of Peru is like trying, is, is about to be recognized as like a, a UN World Heritage Site, like because their diet is so varied and so different. Um, but everywhere we went, the, there were some common staples of like rice and potatoes and chicken. Actually, a ton of ton of starchy, high carbohydrate foods. Um, but what I was really interested in was that the coast was really, really dependent uh, as far as protein intake on in, on fish. And this area that we were at, Huanchaco, uh, is this like cultural heritage center for different civilizations like the Moche and the Chimu, who are pre-Inca, um, and. They still use these traditional reed boats, these uh, Cabitos de Totora. They're like these beautiful hand-built, like almost surf surfboard-like crafts. Um, and that's still how they fish. That's still how they fish. They don't have like these big 
trawlers and, and things like that. So they're doing a lot of stuff with less technology, more of a farm to table, but you know, very simple way of mm-hmm. hunter gatherer type food gathering. Is that kind of what they're doing, or I mean, it's, are it's, they growing a lot of their vegetables, or yes? Um, so there's definitely still a lot of a lot of agriculture mm-hmm. um, in that area. So where we had gone, we were just two hours up into the mountains from Juan Chaco middle of Peru. Right. Um, just like farms sprawling everywhere, people growing everything from legumes to to spinach and things like that and tons of potatoes. I mean just like crazy varieties of potatoes. Um, but that it it's mostly that, that linchpin of protein that for the locals in on the coast, um, being able to fish was really a, a at least this is what um, this is obviously not like a a study looking at food consumption or anything like that, like that the FDA would do. This is really like ethnographically based. So it's really talking with locals about like how they experience their diet, how they feel that they get their protein. Mm-hmm. And all, all the informants that I talked with uh, described fish as their main source of protein. And so... On the coast. On the coast, right. yeah. Right. So there were some... They had described, so we talked with some very old fishermen that were extremely insightful into getting a, a more longitudinal perspective on how fishing had changed, um, just as they'd been doing it for so long. And some had described, I'm trying to get the numbers quite right, and I think this is it, that they used to be able to consistently get 50, like 50 to 60 kilograms of fish in one go, in one go out on their cabritos. And now there are days where they get like between three and eight kilograms. Oh, so it's significantly um, decreased. Yeah. But we did get to see, so we got to see a lot of days where we'd go out and we'd, and we'd watch the fishermen go out and they'd, they'd leave about 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning and come back in about 7. And so we didn't usually get up in time to watch them go out, but we <laughs> were there right. in time for them to come back in. And to see days where they would just look sunken and sullen and because they caught essentially nothing. But we did get to see the second to last day we were there were probably like a hundred kilogram catch. I mean, just this crazy catch. And and the the community, the, all the all the restaurants come out to buy fish from them directly, so they can go straight to their restaurants and cook the fish. Um, families come out and get the fish. Everybody, there, there's also like this exchange system where if you are like someone spotting one that you're gonna help them pull it in and help them pull the catch in, you get paid in fish. Um, so there's this really cool mercantilistic system of how they're distributing this clearly very important commodity um, that it just like the whole community just like brightened up. So it's more, it's more than just food in these communities, you know, it's more than just, oh yeah, you know, being able to have a steak at dinner or, or the nutritional value of, of the proteins. It's really the central commodity for these coastal communities, it sounds like. As far as like the t- nutritional deprivation that these communities are seeing, are you seeing any there with not being able to catch fish? Are they able to sustain themselves on those more carb-heavy foods and yeah. vegetables? And has that affected their health at all, do you think? So that 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 was where it was pretty tough to make any inferences. That it's because it seems like many describe this as a fairly new phenomenon. Mm-hmm. That that the lack of fish is fairly new, and it does seem like so they live. Uh, Juan Chaco is about 25 minutes, 30 minutes from Trujillo, which is 
a city of 1.2 million people. Okay. Um, so if the people of Juan Chaco are essentially having a sufficient income to be able to just like buy chicken, mm-hmm. you know, then they aren't going to see this protein deficiency, um, which would which would be why if, if I could go back, I would really look at more of the fringes of Juan Chaco, particularly a community outside uh, called Juan Chaquito, um, that is... What a perfect name. <laughs> I know, it's just like a little Juan Chaco. A little one. <laughs> um, that, but how, uh, how new are these, how new is this, uh, and this occurrence of poor fishing? <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I don't have a great answer for that. Okay. That was a, the main thing that I, that I, the main, I think, knowledge takeaway that I got from this experience was really that ethnographic research, any research where you're really trying to dive into the lived experience of individuals, you're rarely going to get the same story from everybody. Um, particularly if you can't do if you can't do 30, 40, 50, 60 interviews over the course of a year, which is sort of the, the, the golden standard of, of anthropological research is minimum one year, um, which definitely I absolutely agree with that, particularly with this, that, that I mean, some people, there was a dis- the huge discrepancy, and this is actually basically what my thesis ended up being for the whole project, was this discrepancy over how they perceive El Nino events. Hmm. That, so there was a, an El Nino in 2016, 2017, that just like wiped out uh, thousands of homes just from flooding. Um, that came down, and you can, you can still see the floodplain that, that it's like the wealthy parts of Trujillo, the wealthy parts of this valley, are up on top, and the really poor parts are in, in the floodplain. And so every year, every time there's no, uh, this heavy, heavy El Nino event, um, it just wipes them out. And El Ninos happen, you know, every few years, um, but it's these really severe El Nino events that uh, are growing in regularity. It, it, I think there was like 72, 73, uh, 83, 84, 98, 99, one in the 2000s, and then this last one. So they, they're compressing in, in regularity. And fishermen perceive El Nino events as, there, was, there were many, I shouldn't say the fishermen, many fishermen said that the El Nino events or perceived El Nino events as good fishing years, even though everything in the literature says that those should be the worst years, International fishing industries get tanked during El Nino years because that warm water, the water warms up. Um, and so the coast of Peru is this convergence of so many important uh, international currents um, that clearly, I mean, there's without a doubt, that is the reason. The, these really uh, fertile and nutrient-rich cool waters is without a doubt the reason that the moche were established, the reason that the chimu thrived, the reason that the Inca thrived, like there's a reason that this area has seen so many great civilizations. And so when these, when these El Nino events, so El Nino events are moving warm water towards the western coast of South America, it decreases the nutrient density, so then you get less phytoplankton, so you get less anchovies, so you get less of all the fish, it just cascades upward. But many of the fishermen said that those were the years that, they, that the fishing was the best. Some described it as not just the best, but when they caught the most fish, um, which I think is an important distinction because there is a chance that one of the reasons influencing this, and, and I, I've never gotten from here on, this is me hypothesizing, right. but that it seems like uh, there's a good chance that the reason why they perceived it as, 
as a better fishing year is because they go out on these cabitos, which it's like you have to look one up an, an image to really get an idea. But it's essentially this this tube of reeds that they sit on, and their their legs are in the water. Um, it really is like sitting on on like a small kayak. I guess is probably a better analogy than the surfboard one I used earlier, where their feet their legs are submerged. They're just getting sprayed and splashed the whole time. We went out on one, and I mean it's 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 a cold thing. It only seats one really. Um, and so when these, when the water is warmer, it's just a more pleasant experience. Like for you as a fisherman that maybe has been doing it for 50 years, which were some that we talked to that are in their sixties and their seventies, that that cold water is going to be hard on your bones, like hard on your joints, hard on your body, um, which they, they did describe. There were many that said this, the cold water is really hard on us in our age. So that's one reason why they might be saying that it's, a better fishing year because they're they're staying out longer perhaps or going out sooner or they have more endurance in the water yeah. and it's more of an enjoyable experience exactly. so they're going out more often and and catching more fish um one thing i thought of when you were explaining the situation was perhaps um the industrial fishing might change their fishing techniques mm-hmm. or or patterns during el nino years and that might allow some more fish to be able to be caught by the local fishermen that's I don't know if you looked into that at all but that's that that's a great lead into my next point because that was my conclusion okay. was that even though maybe so here here's like an analogy let's say you have a hundred fish right and during an El Nino during a non-El Nino year the uh the fishermen fish or the the commercial fishing industry takes 99 of those 100 fish and only one out of 100 fish makes it to the fishermen of Juan Chaco. So that is still bad, right? And during an El Nino year, uh, the fishermen don't fish, or the commercial industry doesn't fish any of those fish. But because of the conditions of the El Nino, it wipes out 95 of them. So that's still, you know, a significant increase to go from one to five available fish for the people of Juan Chaco, even though in, a, in, a, in an absolute sense, there's far fewer fish, but in a relative sense, they've just suddenly right. seen an explosion, which is what we have observed. And there's also, so Chile has actually a regulation that says commercial fishing industry cannot fish off the coast of Chile during El Nino years because they know how sensitive uh, the, the environments fishing. are. Yeah. So I think nobody could really conclude that that was probably it, um, but I did email some of the, the faculty that had published these the, the literature that I've been looking at regarding... Um, the way that El Nino events propagate this nutrition deficiency. And they were like, oh yeah, that's, that seems pretty sound. That seems like, if, mm-hmm. if, it, if people are really saying that El Nino events are, are better fishing, it seems like that could be a, a fairly substantial mm-hmm. reason. Because um, they do cite, uh, they, they, they cited a few things as conditions that have been affecting fishing industry. One is climate change, um, the other, is the the marine wolf, which is a, a sea lion, um, that seems to be very, very small, if at all, um, of a of a of a factor. But the commercial fishing industry they cite it all the time, because they even though they have these all these regulations, it's like they can't come more than five kilometers to the coast. They have these long nets, you know, that are like uh, sometimes up to like half a kilometer long. So they can come really quickly at that barrier and then just turn really quickly and then that that net will still cast, you know, half a kilometer into 
this like no oh, fishing sneaky. area. Yeah, that's sneaky. It is sneaky, and so I I think you're absolutely and, right that it probably is this. And what kind of fish are they fishing for? Like how how high up on the fish food chain are we? How significant are these fish in size? Do you oh, know? A lot of it is this this Peruvian anchovy, okay. which like, and I know we think of an anchovy as like this really tiny thing, but it's, it's pretty large, yeah. it's pretty large fish. So, uh, okay. But the fishing industry is definitely a significant factor in determining the amount of fish even available mm-hmm. for the fishermen to catch. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would, yeah, just sitting here knowing the brief amount I do, I would say having them not around during El Nino years would. Yeah. Seems like a good a good, good probability idea. that that's probably what's allowing fishermen to catch more fish. Um, and then what was the purpose of examining the village in the mountains? Was that for as a control or is that kind of more as something separate or? It was, it was really because the, the, the program has a relationship with this, this, okay. this village, this town. Um, it is, and, and, and I mean, it's it was just such a insane experience to go up into this area. I mean, it's at 12,000 feet. Um, so all of us were just like gasping for air the whole time. <laughs> but it's just this in, incredible community. And it's the capital of... So the, the town was called Hulkan, and it's the capital of the Hulkan province, which is the poorest province in Peru um, and is also the potato capital of Peru. And there we were there for uh, a part of the, oh man, I can't remember now if it was the San Pedro festival or if it was a different festival. But we were there for one of these festivals and because the, they were happening at the same time. I think it was um, not San, San Pedro. I think San Pedro was on the coast. Can't remember what the one up in the, the, <laughs> the mountains was. Um, so that's what I realized quickly once I got there is that my research was not going to be assisted by being up in Hulkan, so I mostly just like enjoyed the beautiful mm-hmm. area that, that was Hulkan. I did do some interviews comparing, uh, asking people how they'd perceived El Nino events up there, and some really fascinating things that were just heard in passing, but I mean, not anything that I can make any conclusions on because we were only there for a week, but they would say things like they, so, okay, I'm gonna have to do a quick history lesson That's with the, okay. the Moche and the Chimu. So the Moche came first, um, they're like 100 to 800 AD, um, and then there was a break until like 1000 or 1100 AD, and then the Chimu uh, existed. There, uh, the Chimu were descendants of Moche, so they're very similar culturally. But the Chimu became this really ordered uh, society, very focused on architecture and the, these beautiful ruins and, and, and things and like that. And how long ago are we talking? How many years ago? Uh, the Chimu were ex- extinguished. Uh, they were wiped out by the Inca. So okay. about 1468, I think, was like the last confrontation between the Inca and the okay. Chimu. Um, and it's also ex- exciting to point out. Oh, that was interesting. There we go. Um, that the uh, many of these really cool components that we cite to the Inca, like aqueducts and uh, these these use of reeds and these like internal within their their city walls these cool uh like water pools i don't know exactly how to describe them that they could use as as water access and growing things like a part of these aqueducts yeah that those were actually chimu inventions they were not actually 
Inca, Inca. inventions. The Inca oh. stole many of these things from the Chimu, which is as any good conqueror would, you know, like, oh, they, have, they do something way smarter than us, we're going to take that, um, and hopefully historians will cite us as, as the inventors. But uh, they, there's so much evidence about uh, regarding how they perceived El Nino events, that El Nino events were catastrophic for them as well. There were these burial sites where the, the largest child burial site in the world was just discovered actually while we were there. Um, like a hundred yards from where we were staying, we got to go see them. Um, the, actually, the, one of the the chief discoverers who's at Tulane, um, one of the the main archaeologists that was working down there, he actually just spoke at MSU. I think on like October eleventh. That's amazing. That's so cool. Um, and they and it, there's it seems to be that it matches with previous trends that they had observed that they that these giant child sacrifices um, were to address El Nino. So they were facing, all of the children were sacrificed on hillsides, facing the ocean, um, seeming to like appease the ocean to get it to cease what it had been doing. Um, and there's, yeah, there's just a ton of evidence to suggest that throughout Moche and Chimu, uh, their histories that they had faced El Nino events in these fairly catastrophic ways as well. So it, that's insane. Yeah, that's crazy. It's in, and there's so much of, there's so much pride in that there as well. We, we really yeah huh there uh, as in like a historical pride or a cultural pride or like both there's there's still people who go by their original moche last name that they've like been able to track their lineage back to like that they are moche um wow. things like that and there's so much pride and everybody in the community knows like oh the woman chumo like that's he he's a he's part of that family and, and things like that and there's cities all around Peru um, that go after Moche names. Um, lots and lots of, of heritage sites around the area that are Moche or Chimu heritage wow. sites and archaeology sites. So, um, but for the Moche, these El Nino events were catastrophic, and so they would sacrifice hundreds of children mm-hmm. in hopes of <laughs> stopping El Nino? Yeah. Or, yeah. And, wow. And they did a great job. <laughs> uh, they were really effective. Wow. I... I don't even want to begin to imagine what that would. Thank God for science and for Weather Channel. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then how would? But they thought El Nino was these terrible events in the past. Mm-hmm. But in the at the current day, do they still view El Nino as this terrible thing? Are they thinking about sacrificing their children, or <sighs> or do they view it as kind of this beneficial? Like, no, we get more fish, or. There's nothing really to it at this point. Yeah, I, I think it would still be a net negative really? as far as okay. just because of the, the flooding I was mentioning earlier. Yeah. I mean, like Trujillo, a, a city of 1.2 million people was just like, it wasn't destroyed, but I mean, it was there were just ruins all throughout the city um, from these huge flooding events. I mean, there were, there were photos all around uh, like the city square of Trujillo of... Like, look at what happened last year. Look at what we faced last year. Um, And are these, like, flash flood events where they come out of the mountains and come in and decimate a city? Or are these, like, it's been raining for 10 days straight and we have six feet of water? It's a little bit of of both. But it definitely is a lot more of water falling in the highlands just just, uh, east of them Mm -hmm. and then rolling down through in these more concentrated, essentially, flash flood events. Um, as, as far as I had heard, but because it doesn't seem to rain that much on the coast, but like you go I, just a few miles in right. and that seems to be where. And I can imagine, 
you know, a storm coming in, skipping over the stuff by the coast and getting caught on the mountains, dropping yes. all its rain and precipitation, and then that causing a backflood kind of onto the things below. Yeah. And, I mean, if anybody wants to, if anybody's, like, interested in meteorology or anything like that or, or looking at climate trends, I mean, Peru is just unbelievable. I mean, yeah. just the insane variety of landscapes and biomes and everything like that. But I, I, I got away from the original point of bringing up the moche and the chino, <laughs> which is that they, the, the people of Hulkan, when we asked them about El Nino events, they, they gave two different answers. They said, many said, we are good people, so the El Nino doesn't hurt us. Like that there's some sort of uh, protection of, for the, the Holkon province. And and the Holkon is the one that's up in the mountains? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And looking at, so from uh, trends that I had looked at uh, of rainfall up in, in that province and things like that, they don't ever experience El Ninos. Like the El Nino doesn't affect them. So that ma- their, their ethnographic experience did match up with uh, climatological data. The climatologist didn't conclude that it's because they're good people, but it's still, I, I think that was a really important insight, um, particularly that it still, to me, beckons back, harkens back to uh, the Moche Chimu cultural mm-hmm. components, that it's like, if we are good, we don't, we don't face these El Ninos. Mm-hmm. When we are bad and need sacrifices, then we face, we face these catastrophic El Ninos. So these people aren't experiencing El Ninos, therefore they conclude it's because they're good people. But there were also people who said that when they they feel an El Nino is coming, um, they pray and they do little food sacrifices in their homes. Uh, with chickens. Yeah, it, it was it was often <laughs> not with like, children. With, uh, yeah, usually with, with <laughs> not with children. Um, they didn't they didn't always describe what uh, what they were sacrificing, but it seemed like things like if they're like two different saints, um, if they had like a like an artifact of a saint that they mm-hmm. what, sacrifice um, produce or something. And um, y- if you don't know the answer, that's okay, obviously. But is what do they consider being a good human, like a good person? Is their like crime rates lower because they're good people? Or is there less stealing, or is it because you know you carry this air of oh I'm a good person? You know, like does that actually yeah does that ever like um, like manifest in their culture as as less crime rates or or more school attendance or yeah. something like that. Yeah, so, mm. nobody gave a, a much of a much of an answer to anything like that. We also didn't dive into that mm-hmm. a whole lot. Um, it was actually most of this was all in in one long like three hour long conversation where we were walking out to uh, this more mountainous area outside the city where all these farmers lived. And so it was really just like chatting with them on the way. Um, but there definitely was, there was this, I don't know exactly how to describe the sensation or how their, their tone when talking about it, but there seemed to be this like a, almost a matter of fact tone that like, we're, we're good people. Like El Nino oh, doesn't affect it. us if we're good people. It wasn't like, oh, things were, it seemed like we were starting to become less good people, and then we had to change our ways and then become good people. It was like, we don't get to decide if we're good people or not. The fact that the El Nino hasn't come says we're good people. Got it. That's kind of, that's interesting. For sure. Um, 
Um, how, how good was your Spanish, though? So you're having these three-hour-long conversations with people. Yeah. So my plan going there was knowing that my Spanish is as limited as it is. So, um, like, how many how many semesters are zero. we talking? Zero. I've never had I've never had any Spanish education in okay. my life. Um, knowing that it was gonna be that poor and that I was gonna have to essentially be teaching myself like Duolingoing and and knowing that we were going to also have uh, twice a week, two or three times a week Spanish instruction from the TA for the this faculty led component, um, who is from from the DR. Um, so I was like, okay, I've got a couple different options. Either I can just like buckle down and really uh, learn Spanish in like essentially a couple weeks, you know, or I can try to convince uh, our TA, uh, Marta, who's, who's this amazing uh, Dominican woman who's now uh, doing this graduate project um, in, in India that she got this like crazy scholarship for it. We found out while she was, while she was there with us. Um, and I was like, either I can just like convince her that my project is really cool and maybe she'll just like translate for me basically the whole time. And it, I was fortunate enough to find out that her, the project she was interested in doing down there was similar, that the interviews, it wasn't a similar topic, but she was gonna wanna talk to similar people. Um, so she was just able to, to translate these conversations um, for me, for the most part, um, we also had the privilege of having uh, a local archaeologist, uh, Rafael uh, Rafael Vasquez. He he's an archaeologist in Trujillo, just like basically the the world's biggest fan of Chimu and Moche. I mean, he's just like this this unbelievable guy, this really really awesome uh, archaeologist, and gave a lot of insights. And he 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 doesn't speak any English either, but it was still able to get these both these perspectives is much more academic and like I've lived here my whole life and I've had these conversations a million times and I think about these cultural components deeply so to hear his insights through Martha and then Martha to me um, that was most of how the interviews wow. went down that's um, really cool definitely a big struggle doing it in, yeah. in a language that I definitely felt pretty frustrated that I had spent Spent two years learning Arabic. It's like <laughs> not a not helpful. I mean, Arabic can translate pretty well into other languages, though. I feel I feel like there's some similarities between it and you know other languages. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, but there, there's there's some uh, as far as like some words, um, like well, it, it just there is a, a significant amount of influence on Spanish in particular of the Arabic language. But I mean, the syntax is totally different. The script is totally different. Uh, the the there's no the in Arabic. Like it's a it's a prefix that you put on a word to make it a the. There's no uh, a. You know, you don't say like a dog. You Ooh. just say kalb, which means dog. You use, it's understood that you mean a dog. So a lot of those sorts of things were not didn't tra- translate over very well. But mm. a good understanding of Latin helped out helped out with Spanish for sure. Yeah, yeah I think that's like one of the things I'm most <laughs> like okay about with my homeschool education is that I studied Latin and that understanding Latin roots and how everything comes mm-hmm. together and it definitely helps with medical terminology and Spanish yeah. and French definitely. and English even. I know the the language barrier thing is a huge issue for me because 
I feel especially if you're interested in doing research somewhere else or interested in going to medical school or anything, having a second language is a huge tool. Mm-hmm. You know, not only does it make you more competitive, but I feel like it gives you a better understanding of the world. It gives you more opportunities and um, more possibilities, not in practice per se, but in your life experience, which I think ultimately relates back to practice and, and how you engage with patients. Um, so that's something I'm, I'm incredibly <laughs> driving towards is, is learning developing more Spanish and, and, and more French, I think. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I remember when I went to Nicaragua, I showed up, didn't have any Spanish and sat there for like the first week and didn't understand what was going on. Yeah. And then slowly I started learning words and I could understand it well, but I was too shy to speak it. And so like like week three in my house, mom was like, she's, I don't even know what she said, but it was to like, it was to the tune of like, you're just like a child. You sit, you you understand a lot, but you don't say very much. And I was like, that's really slam. funny. Like slam, okay, like deal. So ever since then, I started talking more. Um, but yeah, props for you for going somewhere where you don't speak the language and trying to conduct research. That's yeah. Well, and I think I would have spent a lot more time learning the language if I thought I was gonna go. Um, Did you not think you were going to go? I, I didn't think I was going to be able to go. I, so I applied for the Gilman, which mm-hmm. is a, a national scholarship. And I was like, there's no chance in hell I'm going to get uh, that scholarship. And that's actually the one that I found out about wow. in the last podcast. Yeah. In the middle of it. That's crazy. Um, and, and so I spent no time learning Spanish because I was like, I'm at 23 credits. Like I, I have things I'm more interested in, mm-hmm. like things that demand my time more than learning Spanish for a trip that's, ne- that's mm-hmm. never going to happen. Um, and then yeah, then then that occurred, and I found out I found out I was gonna go like three weeks before the trip left. So there was that's a whole crazy. Lot of time. That's not a lot of time to no. prepare at all. So and what is the acronym of what you're studying again? It's um, oh history sets sets yeah, yeah. okay cool. Um, I I think that's extremely interesting as well. So now that. I guess, what what was, like, your biggest, you know, it's easy to say, like, we did research and this might impact people's lives in a positive way, but is there something besides that that was a huge benefit to you about this trip? Was there something that you took away on a personal note that was maybe, you know, something you'll take with you for the rest of your life? It, probably a, a few important pieces. One... One, the, the piece that I had mentioned earlier, that ethnographic research is this really messy method of getting information, but I think you get insights that you could never get looking at an almanac or anything. Um, and the reason that it is so messy is that you, the, you, the ethnographer, uh, you, Becca, or you, Joey, or whoever, they are the tool, right? You, as a human being, are the research tool. So it requires, and, and like any tool, it requires maintenance and refinement and, and things like that to improve your ethnographic skills. And that is a ton of work. I mean, that's a lot of reading and a lot of the language component is really important. Um, so that was a, a really exciting insight to, that I'd always heard um, working with the, the faculty, Dr. Michelle Grokey, um, who's hall, whose office is actually like three doors down. Um, and... To really just like see that what she'd always been saying was absolutely like unabashedly true, um, 
the other piece that I took away was I've always been very conflicted about, um, like, dumb white Americans going to foreign countries and, and fixing them, yeah. quote-unquote. And, yeah. and I've always had a, a negative feeling towards that, and it's driven a lot of my efforts here to now um, trying to create a curriculum for for students to be able to go through that they would actually get credit for, where they can engage with these sorts of issues about thinking about their their political act that is travel, um, thinking about what they bring when they go to another country, thinking about what things they take away when they come back, what sorts of burdens they incur onto those communities when they're there. Um, so I've always had a, a huge interest in that in that topic, and I think for myself, I've I've begun to conclude that I don't ever want to go to another country to volunteer or to to do an internship or anything like that ever again. I think I really, if I'm ever gonna go to another country to work, I want it to be work. Like I want it to be where I am there with some sort of skills or credentials that the community seeks, that they want mm -hmm. um, to be able to give it back. Because that was a really important component of why that research project was interesting and important for me, is that I knew it was something we'd be able to leave with Raphael, who lives in these communities, who is an activist in these communities, to be able to be like, Look at, look at what we found. This is what uh, research has suggested that maybe we as, we as the country of Peru or at least the province of Juan Chaco or, or the, the city of Juan Chaco or the, the city of Trujillo should pass legislation that, that prohibits commercial fishing during Trujillo year or during, during El Nino years, just, just banning it altogether following in the same footsteps as Chile. Um, so to me, that was like, that was the only reason why it would, it would be worth it for me. Because um, I know there is a lot of drive, particularly for, for people in pre-medicine that want to go to med school yeah. to become competitive. We feel like we have to go and volunteer and, and be in hospitals and be in clinics. And I think that's great. And, like, I've done that as well. And I, and I derived a lot of satisfaction from that and learned a ton. Um, I just think for me personally, it's just not, not an avenue I want to go down anymore. Yeah. I think if I ever go back to back to Zambia again, it's going to be in a research setting. It's going to be working with the Ministry of Health. It's going to be working with, with a hospital that that seeks the skills that I have acquired um, through my education yeah. to be able to offer that back. And even still, that's still troublesome, you know, because there pro there's a great chance that there is a local who could do it um, better than I could, right? Because they'll have the language experience, they'll know this community, though at the same time, um, there is there is reason to suggest that actually being in your own culture um, doesn't necessarily equip you more to be able to mm -hmm. to assess your own culture. That sometimes it d does take an outside perspective to be to really get to the the root of it. But right, and I think there's a I think there's a really fine line or fine there's very specific circumstances where someone coming in to a community from the outside, especially if you know you're from the US or, or Canada or Europe or somewhere, um, that there's a, a certain type of circumstance where that is beneficial for everyone involved. And it's not just someone coming in and doing their thing and then leaving and never hearing or talking to that community ever again. Um, so that kind of like brings up my next question is like, what's next now that you, how far, how many semesters do you have left in school? What's next after school? Are you going to go somewhere else this summer for winter break or, or you know, yeah. next semester? So uh, I'm not going anywhere for winter break, I don't think. I think <laughs> You're I'm like, gonna, maybe. <laughs> I think I'm going to stay here. Um, 
I just don't don't have any money, and I need to. And there's no scholarships that go over the winter break. Right, so right. Um, I'm also I'm I'm a staff member at the warming center, so I'll I'll really probably dive in over winter break into mm-hmm. that. Um, we actually open tonight. That's the official what? opening of the warming center. No way. Um, oh, and I oh. need to talk to you about. Actually, this segues nicely. I was talking to someone about um, how there should be more focus on volunteering locally to populations. Absolutely. Especially like homeless populations Mm -hmm. like people that are at the roaming center or the reservations are a huge one for me. It's something I've been like, I really like am at odds with because I I feel like we could do so much on them and that there is a huge need. But again, it's like, are we going into a nation? And because they are, you know, I consider them their own, their own nations. um, So that's something also I've just been like, debating with myself about is is that a place for people to go in and, and help in um but i do need to talk to you about volunteering at the warming center because that's yeah that's yeah we we are so reliant on our volunteers okay, cool. to come through cool um yeah oh so I, yeah back to your, your first question. <laughs> anyway um that so i probably will just keep doing that i'm i'm currently right now like chest deep in applying for uh, master's in public health programs. Cool. Because um, I want to do an MPH before uh, MD, yeah. MD, PhD. Um, so that's that's what I'm looking at right now. I'm working with Dr. Groki again um, on a on a project looking at um, working for MSU Extension, which has agents in all 56 counties in Montana. Actually, it's like 54. There's a few counties that are, that are doubled up. Um, that do programming, that conduct programs and courses and, and bring in experts to talk about anything from, I mean, we've seen th- things as, as benign as like, oh, here's how to can properly for food preparation or how to freeze things effectively so that we can make the best use of our food and limit, lim- eliminate food waste to the, the most recent one was looking at uh, dementia and Alzheimer's uh, outreach programming, like how to how to be more sensitive with People in our communities that have dementia or Alzheimer's, if you have, if you are a caregiver as a family member, here are some here are some skills because a lot of people you know just get thrown into that like mm-hmm. suddenly their their parent uh, can't remember anything. It seems really incorrigible, really difficult to connect with, and they're like I don't know what's going on, but they just have to go in. You know they just get suddenly they're adding this extra stress into their life because um, they want to. You know they love this person, but they don't have the skills. So that's mm-hmm. that's what this most recent one. Uh, That's really was about, and so we create evaluation metrics for determining the effectiveness of their programs and things like that. Taking surveys that they had done, um, and not trying to standardize them across all fifty six counties. So everybody who does the same project does the same course has the same evaluation tool, so they can compare them across counties and give the sort of information to their to their county commissioners for funding. Um, That's really interesting. My grandma. So this semester, I'm living with my grandma. And she has had like a whole slew of health complications throughout her life. And um, lately she started to forget things and it's, you know, she's older. She has, she has a TIA history. She has COPD, um, not the best diet, doesn't get out a lot. Um, so it is, you know, it, it's a lot when she can't remember like whether she ate today or yeah. what the fo- my phone number is or something. So I definitely can, like, 
It is. It's like a whole. Definitely. It's like taking care of like a seven-year-old kind yeah. of, but it's an, an adult, and you and part of you even even with someone as someone with medical experience, I'm like, can't you just like like you don't need my help for this? Like I know yeah. you know how to do this, and it's frustrating because I'm crunched for time, but then I have to remember like she literally can't remember this stuff, and yeah. like it's so far. It's like her appearance is not what's going on in her brain at all mm-hmm. and um yeah it's it's definitely been interesting and challenging for sure um but again like I'm just glad she has someone there to help her at the same time so that's that's good but and and I I absolutely agree that I think there there's so that's what's like frustrating about it. so there seems to be this new emergence of this cadre of student organizations at MSU that are really interested in international volunteering, international service, international health care. I mean, there's like... Maybe there's it's the global health minor that caused it, that. It, it, <laughs> might, it might have been a, a propagation as a result of that. But I think a lot of them were came before. But I, I definitely think that uh, it gave them a little bit more, a, a little bit more jolt, a little bit more oomph. But it is frustrating because there are so many nonprofits in Bozeman that are dying for volunteers, that are dying for mm-hmm. projects. Like, I'm, I'm doing a project, and it's easy for me because I'm a warming center staff member. Um, but I'm doing a nutrition assessment looking at uh, food options for our community members experiencing homelessness and looking at, how, like, are they turning away healthier options for uh, less healthy options? So if, if they could go to the food bank and eat eggs and vegetables and things like that, would they? Well, probably not because they don't have anywhere to freaking prepare food, right? right? Like, that's another thing we don't we don't ever think about because... We're like, we're just trying to create like the space, like we've got the Fork and Spoon, which is an amazing resource um, to provide free meals to our to our vulnerable community members. But it's like, there, there are other meals of the day, There's, they're not open, I think it's Saturdays, either Saturday or Sunday they're not open, um, or Monday, it's some weird day like that. But so there's days that it's not open or maybe, and there's also like this really cool therapeutic effect to preparing food mm-hmm. with people, you know, that there is like, there, there is an important part of uh, de-stressing that comes with preparing food, with being well, able to sit down. And, and, and culture as well. Every single culture, oh, food is central to culture and family and that, that community unit, you know, of, of roommates or family members, like sitting down, preparing a meal, eating a meal, that's central to a lot of our social well-being, yeah. even. And, um, yeah, plus I can imagine if you're, you know, if you're homeless, you are thinking what's the most caloric thing I could exactly. eat. Exactly. And that's usually going to be something from McDonald's for $2. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, eating that on a day-to-day basis just, you know, can put you at chronic health issue mm-hmm. risk for sure yeah i mean that's that's the the challenge and that's why i think i've become much more interested in, in nutrition is looking at the the greatest burden of disease in the next 20 years is going to be non-communicable diseases right. and so many non-communicable diseases if not basically all of them, all of them. are linked to our diet right in these really intimate and really uh easily changeable ways um and it it is it's it's sad to see that our most vulnerable the poorest in our communities those that have the least access to more nutritional options or nutritional opportunities um, or alternatives to their current diet um, are going to be the ones that face that with the greatest severity um the 
it's it's also and that's what I'm I'm excited to investigate is like what are the barriers to eating healthier? Is it that they can't prepare food? Is it that they just don't like it? Is it that, mm-hmm. that it really is there is a barrier of access? Or are there these cultural codes where they where they we have a, we as a, a different groups, um, different strata of community have started to internalize what sort of cultural codes we consume in our foods? Like, because I mean, food we we are constantly experiencing like these cultural codes um, that that we like. Oh, I go to the co-op and I eat co-op foods, and I tell my friends that I eat at the co-op. You know, like in the 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 codes that come with that. Um, that say I care about my health. I care about eating locally. Like these codes that I want to transmit out to other people, um, that maybe it is this like okay, I'm I'm a homeless person, um, or I'm a person experiencing homelessness, and we eat Doritos. You know, we eat these sorts of things, right. and we've been told that this is what we eat. Especially it's if you're, cheap. you know, if you are someone who is not stable, you know, mm-hmm. someone who doesn't have a home, you're going to try and seek out a type of community. Yes. And if that type of community has this certain standard of code of, well, this is what we eat, this is what we drink, this is what we do, you know, you're going to adhere to that almost religiously. Yeah. I feel like, um, for sure. So. Yeah. And that's what, I'm, that's what the project is for, which my deadline is December 30th. So, so you're working November on that project 30th. during the warming center thing? Or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll be doing that while I'm at work. That's really interesting. That's so cool. All diet recall type qualitative. Yeah. Quantitative the problem, the problem with those though, is diet recall is very, very variable. Oh. Very yeah. extremely variable. But it's it, once you start to do a significant, once you get a, a good base of how many, mm-hmm. uh, of of like eight to ten kind of thing, you you'll probably start to see trends. Particularly, that's what I suspect to see in a population where their diet is so restricted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and their options for diet are yeah. restricted as yeah. well. Yeah. And so, if if I get a sufficient number, then you can do pile sorts. I don't know if you're familiar with pile I'm sorts, not. but it's essentially like you take you take you as the ethnographer have chosen specific foods that you think are relevant to group. Um, or that could be groupable. And you say, okay, here, I'm not gonna ask you what you ate in the last 24 hours, but I'm gonna give you a bunch of foods that your peers, you know, your equals here as warming center guests, um, have, have said that they eat. Which ones are relevant to you? And they can put them in categories of like, things I've eaten recently, things I haven't eaten in a while, things I would never eat. And then you can ask again, like, well, what things are more expensive? And then they put like an expensive category, a less expensive category. So then you can get these really cool uh, intimate glimpses into into cultural Their domains. Process yeah. Also, on, on why they're choosing certain foods. Totally. That's really that's really cool. That's really interesting. Cool. Well, Joey, thanks for sitting down and talking with me. Yeah, Appreciate of course. It. it was. It's an honor to be <laughs> to be asked. Two time. I know. I know. Podcast. I love it. I love it. I'm like, this podcast. Like, so this summer was kind of rough um, with an internship. It just didn't. I just was not in a good place um, mentally, and so I just didn't have time to do podcasts over the summer. And um, like I was flying back and forth between the east and west coast, so it messed up my sleep cycle really, really tremendously terribly, which caused like (laughs) a mental decline in my health. Yeah, definitely. um, That sounds pretty stressful. Yeah, and um, so I'm like hoping to get this back up and get going and like get more people on. Um, 
And, like, you know you haven't... I was talking to a friend last night, but, like, you know you found something special when you're, like, putting off schoolwork to do mm-hmm. it. And there's, like, no incentive to do it other than you just love to do it. So I was like, this is probably a good indicator that I should keep doing this. But, yeah, but thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I'm, I'm so excited to hear about everything that's to come. <laughs>